0: Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com.
1: Ted Seides is the Managing Director of Hidden Brook Investments, LLC. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Hidden Brook Investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Hidden Brook Investments may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast.
0: My guest on today's show is investment business luminary, Charlie Ellis. After spending nearly a decade as an equity research analyst in the 1960s, Charlie founded financial services consulting firm Greenwich Associates in 1972 to help financial institutions understand what their clients think of them. Over 50 years, Charlie has worked hand-in-hand with nearly every major financial institution in the world. Charlie's stellar academic pedigree includes receiving his undergraduate degree at Yale, an MBA at Harvard, a PhD in financial economics at NYU, and his CFA charter. He has taught at both Yale and Harvard's business schools and has served in a board capacity at each of his alma maters, Phillips Exeter Academy, Yale University, on the visiting committee at Harvard Business School, as an overseer at the Stern School of Business at NYU and serving as chairman of the CFA Institute. He also has worked on the boards of numerous other nonprofits and institutions. Charlie is a prolific writer, having published 16 books on investing. His seminal treatise came in 1975, when he penned a financial analyst journal article entitled The Loser's Game, the piece may have been the first proclamation that active managers as a whole will struggle to beat the market. And it came the year before Jack Bogle launched the first index fund. Charlie turned the article into a book called Winning the Loser's Game, which is now in its seventh edition. A quarter century after the first edition, Charlie became a director on Vanguard's board and served for eight years. His most recent book, The Index Revolution, Why Investors Should Join It Now, hit the bookshelves last year. Charlie is not just another preacher for index fund investing. He extols the virtue of indexing after having looked both broadly and deeply under the covers of some of the most successful active managers in the world. Our conversation begins with a glimpse at what equity research and the structure of markets looked like in the 1960s, and the monumentally different way research is conducted and markets function today. Charlie describes elegantly why indexing is a winner's game and why financial advice, nevertheless, still matters. We then walk through the very special and rare qualities of three of the most successful active managers over the last few decades. Vanguard, yes, that Vanguard, Capital Group, and Yale University. Charlie is a brilliant communicator and masterful storyteller. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed our conversation. And if you do, please subscribe to the podcast and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. With that, my conversation with Charlie Ellis. Charlie, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. Well, I'd like to start by thanking you. Not the usual way I start these podcasts, but in your case, uh, as you know, and now I'll share, there have been two acts of kindness that you bestowed on me uh, in my professional career that have really changed the trajectory of that career. I'm sorry, it's only two. (laughs) There are Many more lessons. The first, right around 20 years ago, I was still a young pup working for David Swenson. You were a member of Yale's Investment Committee and had heard that I had applied to Harvard Business School. And you said to me, send me your essays. Today better than tomorrow, this morning better than this afternoon. And you never know the cause and effect of these processes. All I know is about three weeks later, I got a fat envelope in the mail. And so I know how I ascribed cause and effect. So that certainly changed uh, the trajectory of my life at that point in time.
1: I'm very glad, particularly glad that you did go because I know David had some reservations in those days. He's modified his views since then.
0: Yeah, he did. He did. And then more recently, I had known that you really were the impetus for David writing his book and nudging him to do that, his seminal work, pioneering portfolio management. And I had an idea to write a book and called you up, and you listened and said two things. You said, call Bill Falloon at Wiley, who became my publisher, was wonderful to work with, And you said something that I've shared with other people aspiring to write books, which is don't write a book, write a chapter, have fun with it. If you like it, write another one, maybe someday write an outline, and when you feel like it, send something to Bill. And I did that, and it made the whole process really very enjoyable. So thank you, Terrific. There's
1: one other piece of advice. Maintain complete control of the cover. (laughs)
0: That's right. So, you know, Charlie, I have been the fortunate beneficiary of your wisdom on and off for 25 years now. It's a Uh, nice start. And and thank you. It is a nice start. We're going to spend most of this conversation discussing your recent book, The Index Revolution, Why Investors Should Join. And I want to dive in much earlier on than this book. Uh, Shortly after you graduated Yale, you got started in the investment business as a research analyst, Rockefeller Family Office, and Donaldson Lufkin Red in the early days.
1: Yeah, you might include that I had gone to Harvard Business School, didn't come straight out of Yale into that. But I'd also been in the United States Army for the six-month, six-year reserve thing. You learned some interesting things there. You, what do you learn in the Army? Haven't heard those stories. Well, we can't do it on a program, but I can tell you one of the great uses of the English language I have ever seen. was on a very foggy day, we were on the rifle range with the pop-up targets coming out of the woods, and we're supposed to see and fire, see and fire, see and fire. And one of the soldiers had jammed his rifle. So the sergeant in charge of our unit took the rifle and stood it on its butt and kicked the opening open, and it didn't work. So he kicked it again with a really strong downward thrust, and it didn't open. And he kicked it one more time, and then he delivered the greatest sentence I've ever heard, F, the effing effers effed. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the musical
0: tone of inflection that made it really <laughs> memorable. Now, how did you end up going early in your career into the investment business? Accident. Purely accident.
1: In my time getting in the 19th, early 1960s, anybody went into investment management either, had a wealthy family and he was kind of looking out for the family's money or had made a mistake and didn't know what he was doing. And for you? I was in the second category. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea what I was doing. But in those days, you know, you got paid a salary and it might be five, it might be six thousand dollars a year, whether you needed it or not. And there was no prospect of uh, increasing income, oh, an orderly, deliberate rate of maybe 3 4 5% a year. But then after inflation, it's not all that much. And people were in investment management because they loved it or because they felt a family obligation and responsibility. But it was not an attractive place to have a career. But little did I know, in the shadows right behind me, was coming, what has got to be one of the greatest booms any line of work has ever had in the history of the world. So
0: what was equity research like when you got started? Imagine quite a bit different from the way it works today. Well, it was fairly different. First, there was
1: almost no research available. Standard & Poor's put out six by eight inch, one side piece of paper, left-hand side would be all the history in the right-hand side would be the stock price. It was all very formulaic and totally useless because it was always looking backward. You'd take out your slussy slide rule. I had a log-log Desitrix, which I was terribly proud of, (laughs) although I didn't know how to manipulate it nearly as well as the proficient guys. And then you'd go down to the New York Stock Exchange where there was a small, dark room called the SEC Library where forms 10K were available in drawers of cardboard files, and you could look up data on the company, and then you'd study that and try to figure out what do you think is the real cash flow of this company, and what are they doing with their capital expenditures, and are they at a high or low profit margin, and then try to work out what do you think the earnings might be. And it was not very skillful work that was being done, but compared
0: to what the competition was doing, it was fine. Yeah. And how long would it take from you know, your boss says, "Hey, Charlie, can you look at AT and T or whatever it was?" How long would it take from that to when you had a sense of even what the financials looked like in that year?
1: Oh, a week or two. But what's really scary is when you got to the end of the two weeks. You thought you had a pretty good fix on it, but that didn't mean it had anything to do with actual reality. And why is that? Just because we were working from a distance. We didn't have access to the really serious insight that you need to have in a company. Uh, you might be able to meet with the treasurer for half an hour. Uh, that was about it, but you wouldn't be
0: expected to go back more than once every year or two. It was a different world. Yeah. And, and so what did the structure of the market look like? Meaning, who were the participants in the stock market then?
1: 91, 2, 3% would be done by individuals. And they bought or sold stock every year or two. And almost exactly half of their trading was done in odd lots of AT&T common stock. They never bought because of something inside the market. It was always outside the market. They got a bonus or an inheritance or they saved some money and decided to invest it, or they needed to get some money to buy a house or to put the kids through college or something like that. But people were remarkably distant from all the things that we think of as the way business is done today. Institutions, and they were candidly mostly pretty sleepy, regional bank, trust departments that were... Uh, doing personal trust business, so you wanted to buy and hold forever, and therefore you'd concentrate in blue-chip stocks, looking for good dividends so the remainderman would be okay on the capital gains and the trust beneficiary would be okay on the income. And you had an approved list that was passed down by the investment committee once every month to say which stocks you could operate in, and that was it. You couldn't buy or sell anything else they were the largest group. And then the second would probably be the insurance companies. And, you know, in the insurance business, the smartest guys went into sales. The second smartest guys went into lending because most of the insurance portfolios were debt. And the dumb guys went into the equity side because they needed something to do. And so that that was not very ferocious competition. There were a couple of mutual funds in Boston. There were couple in New York, there was one out in Los Angeles and there might be one in Chicago There might not, depending on how you would define a mutual fund organization. And it was very low-key, quiet, easygoing line of work. And then, as I said, most of it was over 90% of the trading was done by individuals. Amateur
0: individuals. I can't emphasize too much. Amateur individuals. So did the small percentage of professionals back then have an advantage? Sort of. They were at least
1: working on a comparative basis between one stock and another. The second is they were starting to get some really interesting research coming out of a new group of firms that were forming up in Wall Street. Firms like Baker Weeks, Faulkner-Dawkins and Sullivan, uh, Mitchell Hutchins. Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jen names that years later would be considered really quite interesting and important firms. But in those days, they were just barely getting started, and they'd put out three, four, five reports a year, but the reports were not one or two pages. They were 20, 40, 60, 80, even 100 pages long. One of the firms, Walter B. Delafield, put a hard cover
0: on their reports to make them look like they were important. And so you, you were in the equity research field for how many years early on in your career? I had three years with the Rockefeller family and then I had six years with Donald Lufkin. And then you decided to start Grinch Associates. Yes. And what was the impetus for starting Grinch Associates?
1: One day I was sitting there wondering what am I going to do when a light bulb came out of the ceiling and gradually came down to my eye level and said Charlie blink blink Charlie blink blink this is the opportunity of a lifetime and that was Everybody who's involved in financial services, I saw it primarily through the stockbroker's business and the investment management business. Same thing's true of banking, investment banking, bond dealing, whatever. You don't know how you stand with your customers. You really don't because they won't tell you, nor why should they. And you don't know how you're doing compared to your competitors. And you don't know who's getting better and who's fading. And you don't know who's doing a lot more of this or a lot more of that. And so you're basically blind man's buff. And I thought, you know, if anybody could figure out how to find out how each of the different firms is doing, as the customers see it, that would be terrific. Well, take the institutional stock brokerage business. There are not a 1,000 major investing institutions. There might be 500. So could you get them to spend better part of an hour if you promised you would never reveal their name or individual identification, only groups of institutions? Could you get them to give you candid feedback by asking them some blunt, direct questions about all the firms they worked with? And if you put all of that from 500 different interviews that might run 45 minutes to an hour in length, you can cover an awful lot of ground if you've got that long to keep asking questions. If you could do that, put all those interviews into one computer, crank the computer, and then print it out, not by name of institution, but by name of stock brokerage firm. Who do you use? How many people say yes to this firm? How many say yes to this firm? What rank do they have with you? And then let's evaluate their sales capabilities on six or seven different factors. Let's evaluate the research on 10 or 12 different factors. Let's evaluate their trading capabilities on half a dozen different factors. And if you got that information, you really have something. If you could then combine that with somebody who knew the business, and say, I know what that means in the context of firm number one, and I'm gonna be meeting with firm number one management in another couple of days. I know what they need to know from this data because I've studied the data a lot. I'm going to write down in three, four, five pages what they need to know, and I'm going to take it to them, and I'm going to explain to them why they need to know this. And it's going to fit with their strategy. It's going to fit within their capabilities, and it's going to prioritize Two, three, or four things that if they take action, it'll increase their business enough so they'll say, holy smokes, what a bargain this was. Let's do that again and again and again and again. And that's basically what it's all about. But there are, in the world as a whole, there are 135 professional or institutional markets. Some are only foreign exchange, some are only stockbrokers, some are only investment banking, some are only investment management for equity, some are just for bonds, some are just for real estate. They're, but there are 135 of them. Okay, but of the 135, at the end of 30 years, we were serving the senior management of the leading firms in every one of those 135. So it was a terrific adventure. And you started Grants Associates in
0: 1972. Right. In 1975, you wrote a paper that, for those in the business know, called The Loser's Game for the Financial Analyst Journal. And you later turned into uh, a book called Winning the Loser's Game. I think then it was called Investment Policy, uh, How to Win the Loser's Game. And you said, effectively what we hear a lot today, that in a, in a constrained market that active managers as a group can outperform, it's very difficult for them to do that. And they're playing a loser's game.
1: Very difficult is the right way to say it. It's not that you can't.
0: Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm really curious about how in the 70s, when relative to today, we can look back and say, boy, this was inefficient. It took two weeks to even get information. It wasn't the right information. Somebody should have been able to be smarter, move faster. How did you get the insight as early as 1975 when 90% of the trading was, was occurring through individuals that still that these professionals as a group couldn't beat the market.
1: You have to understand what I, I was in this unbelievably lucky situation. I was consulting and working with investment management firms on how they could build their business. So I really get to know people quite well when you're working yeah. to help them get better and better at what they want to do. And working very closely with not five or 25 or 50 but actually probably fair to say better part of a hundred different firms, you realize they're all really smart guys and they're all really working hard and they all think they've got a competitive advantage, but they're all competing with each other. And the competition is also really smart and working very hard and got lots of interesting ideas how they could do better. And they're all trying to do better and better and better. So that's the first step. And the second is, if you record over time, systematically, who are the best firms as judged by their clients, institutions like pension funds, if you're doing that and you get to know the firms that are the 10 best, and you come back five years later, and half of the 10 best are no longer in the 10 best, and you come back five years later, and four of the five that were still there are not there now, you realize there's something really serious going on here. And now take a look. What is it? It's not that they're not hardworking. It's not that they are wonderfully talented people. It's not that you don't like them individually, because you do. And they are all got the best and brightest in staff and the best equipment, and they're all working hard as the dickens. The only problem is they're working against each other.
0: So, at the time, you had just launched your firm, it was growing quickly, and you come out with this piece that says, hey, my clients, sorry, but unless you're really, truly exceptional, you're going to lose. How did they react?
1: Oh, it's, it's one of the great tributes to the investment management crowd. They thought, oh, that's interesting. Of course, most of of them said, but it doesn't apply to me. So that probably was the escape valve for most people. But they they said, you know, it's really interesting. I read your piece. I thought it was really great. And then go right back
0: to what they were doing. So when you wrote that piece, originally, probably within a year, Jack Bogle launched the first index fund. And now we know the story. My friend Warren Buffett's told it ad nauseum this year that nobody really cared. So now we fast forward to today completely different market and you've written this wonderful new book The Index Revolution, Why Investors Should Join It Now. So why is now the time we've just had a huge run in the S&P which is not the only index but it's certainly the one that most people that are less informed rush into, valuation seems high. Why is now the time Well it's not now this minute nearly so much as, come on
1: guys, it's been now but for an example for myself, for my wife for my sons and for my grandchildren it's all indexed with one exception and one exception which you and i both know is warren buffett i lucked into understanding berkshire hathaway way back in the 70s and i'm not about to be the guy that warren walks by and says hey i understand you've switched from berkshire hathaway over to indexing. I have too much regard for Warren, and I like him too much. And as you know, if you spend any time with him, you can't help but say, wow, what a wonderful, wonderful man. And he's done great things as far as I'm concerned. So. But other than that, everything is indexed. My own view is there are two different parts. One is operationally, and I'd like to review for you whenever you like the operational changes. And the second is there's better things to do. And that's the really important work of any investor is to figure out who are you as an investor? What are your assets? What's your savings or spending? What is your appetite for risk? How much do you really understand and know about investing? And how much do you want to devote time and energy into the investing activity? And when you figure out all of those different questions, it turns out everybody is unique in terms of who they are and what I like very much to emphasize for everybody I get a chance to talk with is, if you could set aside the operational questions how to do quote unquote better than the market and concentrate all of your imagination and your thoughtfulness and your brain power on trying to figure out for sure who are you and what kind of investing would be better for you, you'd be way ahead, way ahead for sure. And if you take any time away from that policy formation effort to work on the tactics or the details of operations, you're probably making a misallocation of your critical skill, which is your ability to define who you are and where you should be going. And I like to use the analogy, my, my father-in-law was one of the great pilots of the United States Navy. He set a world record that will never be touched because they do let pilots fly as much as he flew. And he flew well into his rank as an admiral. He was one of the great pilots. He was the bald eagle, that is, the longest-serving active duty flyer in the entire Navy. He also set a record for the most dangerous thing I can imagine, which is landing an F-4, which is a heavy fighter bomber that's going at one hell of a great speed when it lands, hits the deck. And sea swells do happen. Small errors do happen, and wind currents are out there and stuff. He sent landing one of those aircraft at top speed— 400 miles an hour, and you either catch the wire or you don't. That's got to be scary, scary stuff. To do that at sea is even more scary. To do it at sea at night, ultimate scare. And Admiral Coke did that. Set a world record. It'll never be touched. Now, he and I have one thing in common, only one thing. or well, We both fly a lot. One thing we have in common is we have perfect record. He gets into the pilot seat and he's one of the great pilots of all time. Perfect record. I get to the airport an hour before flight time. I go to the kiosk and get my ticket. I go to the gate. When they call us, we go to my assigned seat. I buckle my seatbelt and I behave myself. All the operational stuff is taken care of by the pilot up front, A and perfect, I
0: know perfect record of sitting in your seat, and yeah, putting on the right. seatbelt,
1: absolutely. And I know the guys up front have been trained, 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 trained. They're in link trainers when they're not flying actively, and they're really good at what they do. I'm still responsible for deciding: am I going to Chicago or Los Angeles or London? And that's the most important thing I can do is to decide where the dickens am I going. And I think the same thing is true for investors. If they would be completely truthful with themselves, then they may need help from an investor advisor to help them figure out who they really are and what kind of an investment program would be best for them and that they could stay with because every investment program looks wrong sometime. Either it's too bold and the market's going down or it's, uh, you know. Not, scared, not bold enough and the market's going up, whatever it is. There's a time when you will think, I don't know, that's right. You'll usually be the wrong time to reconsider. So find a, a flight path that you'll stay with or a destination that you really agree on. And then let the other guys who are expert at the operations take it on.
0: Charlie, let's talk a little bit about the mechanics, as you said, the operations of the market, and what's different today from what it was in the past that's leading you to so strongly believe that indexing is the right way to go. Well, a one word summary is everything. <laughs> uh,
1: the second would be that we've changed the fee structure. So fees were really quite small. Citigroup, for example, charged 10 basis points. Morgan Guaranty Trust Company charged less. Fees were really small. Now fees are either 50 basis points or 100 basis points depending on what type of portfolio you're looking for, for long only. Then if you go to hedge funds, you're talking about two and 20 and it mounts up, and then you go to private equity, it's even more, and then you find out, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that was part of the fee structure. All those costs are in there too. So. First, fees have been substantially increased, which made a lot of sense when the market, to investors, when the market was doing 10, 12, 14% returns year after year after year. But most people didn't realize that was mostly the revision from super high interest rates that Paul Volcker had insisted on to break the back of inflation with inflationary expectations locked in. That was a beautiful piece of public service he did. But when you get 14% on 10-year treasuries, you know you're talking about a very unusual interest rate. To bring that down to less than 2%, you change bond prices a lot, and sure enough, stock prices too. So most of that bull market was the reversion of the 73-4 market crash to bring it way, way back up. So Number one, fees are really different. Number two, the operational characteristics are really different. Mike Bloomberg didn't exist. Now we've got 250,000 of his machines out everywhere. Everybody's got the internet that wasn't even thought of. Everybody's got computing power, the likes of which we never dreamed of. Everybody's got access to unbelievable research, a typical large research Department of a major securities firm today will have in some place around the world something like 500 to 600 people. Some of them are demographers, some of them are quantitative analysts, some of them are monetary analysts, some are all kinds of different things in the commodities world. Some of them are industry analysts, and every industry is covered. Some of them are company analysts, and every major company is covered. There's an enormous amount of information available. information that's available to everybody all the time, because the SEC, with Regulation Fair Disclosure, or FD, they require it. So changes have been unbelievable in the operations. And then the third thing is change in who's in the marketplace. Used to be 9% was institutional, and now it's 99%. So every time you buy or sell, you're buying or selling from somebody else, just as smart as you are, just as tight-fisted, just as well-organized, just as computerized, and just as fully informed as you are. How are you going to be able to beat the market by enough to recover your fees and costs? Today, it's much, much, much harder, much, much, much harder. And I'm pretty close to saying with certain carefully identified exceptions, you not only is it very difficult, you won't and you almost can't outperform the market after two big things. And it doesn't look big when you say it only 1%. But if you say, no, wait a minute, 7% rate of return, which is what the consensus on the market rate of return looks to be, 1% fee plus 1% to 2% costs of transactions, leaving out taxes entirely. That's really hard because if you gotta get one plus one and a half, You're talking on a 7% base. You're talking about a third better rate of return. Then there's nobody in the investment world today that would say, I'm going to beat my competition by a third year after year after year after year. And then, of course, the hard nose is if you said, let's take the last 10 years, and everybody who started 10 years ago gets counted. The guys that died they get counted. The guys that dropped out, they get counted. The wounded and maimed who got merged into something else, they get counted. If you do that, in the United States, the last 10 years, 84% of actively managed mutual funds underperformed the market they chose to beat. And then just for interest, you see the same information for the UK, there it's 87% underperformed. Now I do think that's pretty bad when you have 80, 85% of professional managers falling short. Of their chosen benchmark, that's a metric of how tough it must be out there. Because you know, it's going to be eighty-five percent of the fifteen percent left won't make it the next ten years. So it's not as though that one out of seven makes it and the rest don't. It's one out of seven is still in the game and the rest aren't.
0: I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So I want to take that lens and apply it to some of your thoughts on active investing. And the reason is that as opposed to some of the other luminaries that are talking about the difference between active and passive, Jack Bogle, even Warren Buffett, to some extent Dave Swenson, depending on what he's talking about, you have seen very deep and broadly inside some of the best active managers in the world over decades. And I would like to touch on three different ones. And we'll walk you through. Those are Vanguard, Capital Group, and Yale University and they're very different. But Let's start with Vanguard. So Vanguard is known as the low-cost provider of of investment management services. Three trillion in assets, what a lot of people don't know is one trillion is actively managed. That's correct, and the reason they have been able to outperform
1: is twofold. Number one, and I've watched lots of different organizations put together their search team that's gonna find who are the very best managers, and when are they the best, and when are they starting to fade, and that sort of thing. They are really good at that, and I've you know I've had the privilege of working with major funds in Singapore, in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the UK, Germany. You ask, name it. I've been all over the place. Just unbelievable string of lucky breaks that I've had the privilege of seeing these extraordinarily capable people, and. Vanguard's selection of active managers is way at the top of the deck in terms of who's got a great team of buyers of investment services. But even if you study them carefully, you'll see that there are only a couple of years in which they clearly did better. Fine. If you've ever been a fisherman or if you've ever been a hunter, you know, you have to have a lot of patience and their time comes, but then you take your privileges when they do come. They are really good at it. But the real secret to success for Vanguard is that they've negotiated low fees on behalf
0: of their investor clients so they pass them on. And the low fees really really matter. So is there something to their process of picking managers that you've spent time on that would that you could share of why you think they've been so good? At selecting the active managers, well, they've at, got a team of people
1: that work at this all day, every day. Yeah. They've got a long, long history of recording the data. They have very, very high standards, and they watch very, very closely for change or modification. And when there is a need for a change, they are very objective, or you might use the term ruthless. They're 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 not soft, warm, friendly, cuddly clients. They're exacting. And if you didn't do the job the way you said you were going to do it, you will be terminated. And that's explained way up front. Everybody knows it all along. But every once in a while, it does happen. Uh, And so they have been, in my view, just terrific. But the world keeps changing. And it keeps getting harder and harder. And I personally think the hardest job that I know of in investment management is to be the new guy who's taken on the responsibility on behalf of Vanguard to select active managers that you will now deploy funds with. That is going to be a terribly difficult
0: job. So let's turn to Capital Group. You wrote a book called Capital, which was really the first deep inside look into uh, an extraordinary organization that that has been in the mutual fund business and uh, with a long record of adding value what was it about capital that you saw that allowed them to succeed over the years
1: oh boy there are quite a large number of different things one was leadership another was compensation another was recruiting and selection of individual people Another was nurturing and guiding people in their professional careers within the capital organization so they were always at their highest and best use, and capital just reversed. Most people say, this is the job, who have we got that might fit it? They do the exact opposite, these are the people we've got, how could we design jobs that will bring out their greatest strengths and give them the most opportunity to add value? Uh, I believe very much in their idea of taking a large portfolio and break it down into sub-portfolios, each managed by people who are really good at something, but only ask them to do what they're really good at doing, and then aggregate that back to create a large portfolio so that you can keep the fees relatively low. And if you look at the average fee that's paid by a capital group or the American funds interchangeable, because they are able to have very large Total funds, because they 're separately managed, and you might have a dozen different sub accounts being managed within a total portfolio they 're able to bring very high grade talent to bear at a very low cost relative to the competition and that gives them a big advantage. Their devotion to research and the originality of thinking is very important to capital as an organization in particular their average holding is much longer than most other mutual funds. So they look at companies in the five to 10-year range rather than the six to 12-month range. And that gives you a completely different frame of reference. And of course, when you're meeting with companies, they know you're a different kind of an investor, and different kind of thinker. But It's really hard to be smarter than the other guys in the very short run. It's not that hard. It's not as hard as that to be really smarter than other people looking in a zone that they're not spending time and effort at. So if you're thinking always about the strategy, long-term development of management skills, long-term development of products and services, long-term development of markets, you really have an understanding of a completely different world than people who are looking at, well, what do you think the next quarter is gonna be?
0: And So so much of the baffling part of the strength of index funds in this period is that, you you touched on with capital, you mentioned leadership. And other people will say, well, the stocks don't talk to the people who own them. And you talked about long-term investing and playing a, a different game than most of the people are playing, but the, the S&P 500 Index Fund is playing that game too. So how, how no, the does the S&P organization-
1: Index Fund has very low turnover, sure. so it has very long holding periods. Right. But that's very different from doing a research-based judgment of value that leads you to take a strong
0: view on which stocks to own. Within that, okay. Yeah. And how does leadership impact an investment organization? Because I know from being in this business that uh, the thought of leadership and management is generally not seen as the strength of many money management businesses. Uh, relative to lots of other and commercial it's not businesses. that it's
1: not right. necessary, it's just that it's not available. So right. no, it's exactly. not it's a strength, <laughs> but it is terribly important. Uh,
0: and what was it at Capital that was so strong in that area?
1: Well, there's so many different ways of looking at it. One is John Lovelace, who for many years was the leader of that organization, had developed a frame of reference when he was working in personnel, it was that if you could find the right way for each individual to be doing what they're best at doing and then aggregate that that would be really important if you could also keep work groups relatively small so they really knew each other very well and got used to really working closely together and you know peter drucker used to laugh and say look yeah the largest team i've ever seen is 11 the next is 9 probably seven would be better and he wasn't kidding that's in athletics but most organizations it doesn't help to get bigger if you want to get better it helps to be relatively small and then get to know each other really well and play superbly well as a team john lovelace had a very strong interest in helping people learn how to be very good at listening not listening to hear what was said, but listening to hear what was meant, this time a little differently from last time. And that's very helpful when you're interviewing companies, trying to learn about companies. But it's also great when you're in the kitchen working with the other folks that are trying to prepare the decision that's gonna be made for the fund. And uh, in the mutual fund business, that's a tremendous advantage. And long tenure of people working together so that, and also, Don't hire anybody that you don't think would be truly likable and don't hire anybody that you don't think is an original independent thinker. Well, if you do those two things, you're very likely to put together quite an interesting group of people to work with and that leads to people wanting to work together for a longer period of time. And as you know, very few people ever leave capital and if they do, they leave with tears in their eyes because they have enjoyed being part of that organization so very, very much. So if you are able to attract outstanding people and keep them deeply engaged in the work for a long, long time that they develop just wonderful capabilities to work together. That's a huge advantage, particularly in a line of work where communication skills are terribly important. And it's not written communication because most of what we do is not written. But it's the ability to Listen so carefully to somebody that you really understand what they are saying, and they know you understand it, so they know you; they can talk to you about, I'm really sure of this, I'm fairly sure of that, I'm not too sure about this, but I want to tell you what I do know
0: and share it with you as best I possibly can. So let's turn to the third example, one uh, near and dear to both of our hearts, the Yale University Endowment uh, and Dave Swenson, and it should be even that much harder, given that Yale's approach is investing in managers, uh, they're not managing most of, almost all the money is is uh, externally managed. You spent 16 years on Yale's investment committee. Every one of delight light, too, I must tell you. Great learning experience. And so what is it that Yale does that others either don't or can't?
1: Well, first, if you went
0: to David
1: Swenson and said, David, I've got great, great news. A fabulous donor of extraordinary wealth has just given Yale $50 billion and wants it in the endowment. David would have to, he would cry. And I'm sure he would say, well, I'll do the best I can, but you have to know I'm going to have to change most of the things that we do and change the way in which we do things. And that is because the Yale capacity and the Yale need for capacity are in harmony. But if you increased it significantly, I think it would be impossible for Yale to say to all of its present managers, okay, guys, we're going to triple the assets under management. They just couldn't do it. And the idea of going from, what, 125 managers now, something like that, to 250? Ooh, wee, would that be difficult to do certainly wouldn't be able to maintain the same standard of excellence. So I think we all have to be realistic. And when people say, I want to follow the Yale model, there's a couple of things that they might want to have on their checklist. You know, like doctors in the operating room go through a checklist, and pilots before they fly go through a checklist, which I think we're all glad both of those groups do it. And the same would be true anybody thinking about, it. I'm going to do what Yale does. Uh, first, do we have a chief investment officer who is brilliant? And I can come back and talk with that if you want to. But yeah, well, truly please, please go
0: into it. I, I think I know more than most having
1: spent a few years Well, it's years worth there, keeping in mind that the first derivative ever done was done by David Swenson when he was working at Solomon Brothers. It was an interest rate swap between IBM and the World Bank. And everybody at Solomon Brothers says, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't swap those. I believe you can. Let me show you why, and then let's explain it to a couple of clients and see if they agree. His conceptualizing skills are very, very high. And to have come up with the kind of overall portfolio structure, marvelous. David's modesty is something that most people forget. He's an exceedingly modest person. Now, partly, it comes out of his family background. His parents are teachers and ministers, and his family his brothers a physician. And service is something that is part of that. But David also is, just candidly, a very modest man, and that makes it very easy for other people to do their best because it's not as though you had the biggest oak tree in the world and it's sucking up all the nutrients, which often happens that good investment people find it difficult not to be terribly proud of who they are. At the same time, David is rational in the same way that when that young woman said to Warren Buffett, Mr. Buffett, what is it that makes you so wonderful as an investor? I'm rational. I'm sorry. I didn't hear quite what you said. What was it you said? I'm rational, ma'am, and turned to the next person to talk. David is very rational. And there's nothing, is very human, very personal, very, very caring. But what he does for Yale is done entirely rationally. And i give you a chapter and verse on that if you want to, but that's an extraordinary characteristic. Another is he's been doing it for more than 30 years. In 30 years, if you're the smartest candle in the chandelier, and you're a lovely, nice guy, and you're easy to be with, and you're full of information, you develop a network of friends and admirers that is terrific. There's never been anybody that ever had such a great network. Maybe there might be two or three, like Warren Buffett maybe one of those people. And I'm sure that if you go all the way back through time, you might find that here and there, there might have been people that are really outstanding. Maybe somebody in the UK. But I, I doubt it. I think it's just an astonishing reality. I count myself in the group. I'm sure you count yourself. If I could ever do anything that David found useful, no big deal, just useful. I would do it immediately. And if you have large numbers of people who are exceptionally bright, and they've all got to know Yale and David and his devotion to that institution, and everybody knows he could have been making 10 times as much money if he worked somewhere else, but he's constantly focused on doing what's right for Yale, helps some other institutions here and there also. So Oxford and Cambridge haven't been hurt by Yale. Harvard and Princeton haven't been hurt by Yale. Stanford, you know, a lot of different places, MIT, where they would say, you know, David's really been very helpful to us, and they're right. You take all the different comparative advantages that Yale has in David Swenson as their chief investment officer, and it's virtually impossible to replicate. And you say, well, okay, what else? Well, Yale is a wonderful institution, and it's doing great work for the world as a whole, but most obviously for Americans. Lots of kids go, it's graduate students, undergraduates, law school, medical school, divinity school, whatever, and they all know that one of the reasons they're able to go is because the Yale investment program has been so good you look back over time. When David first arrived, they had one billion dollars, and now they got roughly twenty-five times that. And they've spewed money out to the university year and after year after year after year. It's just astonishing yeah. how much has been, and that allows the university to do the mission-centered things that it really wants to do. Which, of course, is why David does what he does. But you know, it's a marvelous combination of different characteristics. You
0: know, Charlie, I want to throw one more characteristic on that, which you have been intimately involved with, which is the governance structure. And I'll tell a little story that Peter Bernstein, the late wonderful Peter Bernstein used to tell about the Yale Endowment, which is if you looked at Yale's U.S. equity portfolio, long-only domestic equity, used to be much more important than it is today. From 1994 to 1999, that five-year period Yale's U.S. equity managers that they hired underperformed the market by 40 percentage points cumulatively, 8% per year for five years. Not a single manager was fired. David wasn't fired. And when they then held that same portfolio for two more years, from 1999 through 2001, maybe it was 2002, it flipped and the outperformance turned to 70% cumulatively over eight years. That has a lot to do with certain biases that Yale had and small cap and value and concentration, very different from the market characteristics. But what does it take for a governance board to stand firm through an incredible amount of relative performance pain? There is probably no active manager in the world who could underperform by eight percentage points a year for five years and stay in business. How is it, you having sat there, that Yale was able to do that within a subset well, of the Well, keep portfolio.
1: in mind it was a diversified portfolio. Some other parts were at the engine were doing really, really well. That's right. That helps. But the main things, and I think these are lessons that can be borrowed by anybody and used at any time. First, the investment committee very carefully chosen to be people who, number one, play well with others. Key characteristic is they listen well Not for their opening, but for an understanding of the other person's real point. That's so valuable. Uh, Second thing is the depth of homework that you're required to do. I found when I was on that committee, I had to set aside an entire day. And I don't mean a nine to five day. I mean from eight in the morning till eight at night or nine at night studying the documents so that I would be adequately prepared so I wouldn't embarrass myself when I went into the meeting. So, you know, that's a very unusual characteristic. Two parts. One is, imagine how much homework was done by the guys who prepared the documents, and they do that four times a year, and then how much time was put in by every member of the committee. So they, all of us scared each other into being fully prepared. So I'm sure that if you talk to everyone else who served on David's committee, they would all agree I never worked so hard for anything in my life I thought it was an <laughs> honor when I was asked and boy did I misunderestimate that one. And then the rigor of the homework, the rigor of the preparation and then once a year there's a bring every possible question, complaint, doubt, skepticism, wonderment, whatever you've got in the way of any question, bring it to us a month or more before the meeting because we want to completely examine everything to our satisfaction and to yours on every question that's raised. Because once a year, we have a soup to nuts, tear it all apart, look at every single assumption, Does it all really, really, really make sense exactly the way it is? So should we make some minor or mid-sized or even large changes? You know, we all prepare pretty well for Christmas because we know Christmas is on the 25th. And we all know that you have to get presents for certain members of your family. So you start doing that in April or May the year before, if you get lucky, certainly by September, you're starting to pay attention. And by the end of October, you're really getting focused on it. Uh, and we all know where we're going to be, which year is with this parent, which year is that parent. And we all know what we're going to have for food. And we all know whether we open the presents and the stockings, do we open them at the same time or before breakfast or after breakfast or before lunch or after lunch? Or do we... Do tree first or the stockings first? You know, we figured it all out. The same kind of a thing with regard to that once-a-year review. Everybody knows this is going to be a rigorous, soup-to-nuts, complete examination. For God's sake, try to come up with a really good question, because if you don't, you'll wonder why you didn't contribute. And if you do, and others do, that day turns out to be enormously productive, including What almost always happened is we agreed no basic changes, but we've reaffirmed the strategy, the policies, and the practices in that day, and that's understood to be the only day we're gonna do that. Now, of course, David could later raise a question, but he never did in the 16 years that I was there, never did, and we had really tough questions during that one day, and it was all done, And it was done so well that everybody was secure. This is the way we're going to do it. And knowing that in advance is enormously helpful because it is a thunderstorm of work and effort going into it. But it is so valuable, and it's the critical characteristic of good governance is to do a complete discussion, review, examination, kick the tires, make the decisions. Have you got it exactly right, or could their modification be a good idea? And as you probably know, this last year, they had minor modification, and they thought that was terribly exciting and important. It was just a minor modification. (laughs) Yeah, but it was a really rigorously determined modification. So that's a crucial part of good governance. I think any committee that is taking on anything that's got salience and it can be by the size of the assets are important or by the percentage of the budget that it covers or whether it's just emotionally important any of those criteria an endowment local church local hospital local library medium-sized college large college university foundation any place that's got an endowment a thorough examination that leads to the right formulation of basic policy is tremendously helpful. And then of course I would say and probably most of us should implement using index funds.
0: And we've you started touching on how people should really pay attention to their own needs, their own risk tolerance. We uh, are all their own unique.
1: Every single one of us when you go through just a few calibrations, what are your assets? What's your saving or spending net? What's your time horizon? What are future sources if you need them? What other sources are around you? So, university has money coming in from NIH and grants, has money coming in from tuition, which Yale's case is really a really small fraction of the total, but it's there. Money coming in from alumni and their gifts, which is crucial and makes a huge difference to the university as a whole. Put all those different component parts together. So, don't look at your endowment all by itself. Look at it in. Context of the total system with all the different important moving parts uh, You're in a very different picture.
0: And one of the things I've started talking to people about in and around the field is How do you think about? Your passion for the markets or someone who's deeply passionate about the markets with a potential awareness that this might be Impossible is this a fruitful way to spend their time? How do you advise people, maybe early career, mid-career, doesn't really matter, of someone who says, well, but I I love the markets, and I love learning about businesses and everything about researching or investing in stocks, and yet it's a loser's game. What should I do?
1: It depends on who they are. You know, there are people that would say, oh, I'd like to be an entrepreneur. You were an entrepreneur when you started Grantsy Associates. I'd like to get some advice from you. What would you advise me about being an entrepreneur? My answer is always the same don't do it. And I look at their eyes and if they blink, I stick with don't do it. If they look like they're about to give me a punch in the nose, I say, but if you want to talk about it, I'd be glad to talk with you about it and give you some suggestions on how to go about doing it. But you have to really, really, really want to do it to make being an entrepreneur a good idea. If you really love investing and you really, really want to do it, and it's not because it's the highest paid line of work in the world, which it is now, but it's not going to stay way up there forever. If you do it because you love it, fine. It's a marvelous way to learn how the world works. It's a wonderful way to learn how the economy works. It's a wonderful way to learn how businesses fail and succeed and fail and succeed. And it's a great way to find out who you are and what you're good at. So. It's not all that bad a line of work. Even if it didn't pay well, it'd be a terrific way to learn a lot about yourself and about the world you might be going into. So somebody really wants to do it, fine. But if somebody's doing it because they think it's an easy way to make a buck, they're crazy. And they're not the right kinds of people to be doing that kind of work. People who go into the investment management line of work who really are going to be needed for a long, long time are the people who go in to help other people whether they're institutions or individuals, figure out what's the right way to define the problem so that you can then decide what's the right kind of investment program would work for you. And that kind of advising is going to be needed as long as we've got human beings who are at work. And committees are just more complex versions of human beings. So that's a line of work that's
0: going to be tremendously needed and huge opportunity to add value. That's very helpful. I want to go into some of my typical uh, closing questions, but before that, I want to read something back to you that you said. uh, One of your post Associates endeavors was something called the Partners of 63, your graduating year at Harvard Business School, and you and your classmates put together a compendium called If I Knew Then, a series of stories, lessons about careers, finance, and life. And I took one of, uh, one of yours. It was about marriage and family. It was the very first one posted on the Partners of 63 website. And you said the following, make family life your first priority. Marry someone you admire and are always learning from, who admires and learns from you. Help each other grow and share values, plans, experience, laughs, and time together. You're almost welling up as I'm saying this. Those words are easy to say. They're very hard to live and act for many, many people. And I'd love for you to reflect on that a little bit.
1: Well, I'm in that very happy position. I'm married to Linda Lorimer. And those who know Linda would know that she is one of the most extraordinary people they've ever met. And then she said, you mean among women? I said, no, among people. And among women, very definitely. And she is fun to be with. She is exciting to know. And to watch what she's doing is always a big lift. Even when it's some little something like playing with our dog Chester, her way of making Chester feel great about life is different. Uh, Her way of raising children is different. Her way of friendship is different and treasured by her friends. Her way of dealing with difficult, complex, mean, nasty problems is different and skillful and beneficial. And so, Any organization that has Linda as part of that organization has a great, good feeling about it. And I'd rather talk with her than anybody I can imagine. And if I have a really complicated question, I try to think, what would Linda think I should do? And then if I can't figure it out myself, I might very well race it
0: with her. So Charlie, what is your favorite thing to do that is a complete waste of time? You tipped me off that you were going to ask me that. I did. And I confess to you,
1: I can't answer the question. I basically don't do anything that's not, in my own best estimate, fairly productive. I mean, you'd laugh, you'd say, Well, what do you mean? Well, first of all, I'm not a great athlete, so I don't go out and use up a lot. I don't play golf. I do like to exercise, so I've got a machine down in the basement, and I do that every chance I get. I used to play tennis with Linda quite a lot, but I've got a detached retina, so I don't have depth perception, so I send the ball in all kinds of funny directions, (laughs) and that takes some of the fun out of that game. I love skiing, and if you gave me a chance, I'd go skiing, Uh, so maybe that's the best answer, and I do enjoy sailing, and it's silly, but I've gotten into, I like hiking, long-distance hiking. Uh, We went to New Zealand, and went hiking on one the Routhburn, which is one of the really tough trails. And it's up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down, micro, macro, and in between. And it's eight miles a day, three days in a row. And that was great fun. We had a wonderful time. You know, but basically, I really am in that happiest of all positions. And Confucius put it just right. He said, if you find work you love to do, you'll never work again. And I quit working at 30 I haven't done anything that I don't really enjoy doing, but my friends would all say that's ridiculous. You work all the time. I'm playing all the time. I just have too much fun doing the things that I'm doing. Ted, honestly, I just really enjoy it. And I put in a long day. I'm up at five thirty or six every morning and going to and. Quit time is sometime between ten thirty and eleven thirty, and Saturday is a real day. I don't put in quite a full day, but. Pretty close, and Sunday from noon on is another. And it is just too damn much fun, if you ask me. Well, uh, how do you feel about dying? Are you afraid? No, I'm not afraid of dying, but I'm sure as hell be miffed if I missed the chance to do a few more things.
0: <laughs> Charlie, what was your favorite sports moment, either as a participant or, in your case, perhaps as an observer?
1: Well, again, you tip me off on that, so I'm going to give you a straight answer best experience I ever had in any sport was playing ping pong with my son, who was gradually growing taller and taller and taller. First he was 10, then he was 11, then he was 12, and then he was 13. And I promised him that I would never not play seriously. And so we played seriously, and we went from overwhelming defeat on his side to beaten badly to beaten to beaten but not by much. And then one night, Chad won. And I've never seen anything quite like the look <laughs> of astonishment on his face. And the silence was amazing. And then he put his paddle down, raised both hands over his head and said, I beat him, I beat him, I beat him. That's got to be my favorite fabulous, all time. Fabulous, fabulous. I'll give you another one that was Please. just terrific friends of mine and i went skiing in the selkirk or bugaboo mountains of canada and these are mountains that actually their base is below sea level geology is interesting that way so that the snow which comes piling out of the north is powder snow like you've never seen and the powder will be up to your waist or higher and a group of adults eight people to a helicopter you've just been dropped off at the top of a mountain and the way down is not marked, but one of the guides will go first because they know where the dangerous snow is and know how to stay out of the danger areas. And to do 100 linked parallel turns in powder snow all the way down the mountain, it's gotta be one of the greatest experiences I've ever had.
0: Fabulous, I have two more for you. What do you know now that you wish you knew 10 years ago?
1: That's easy. I made a horrible mistake of believing that a classmate from college was really smart, which was accurate, and be a great guy to do some venture investing with. And I trusted
0: him, and that was a big mistake. Wow, sorry to hear that. Me too. <laughs> and what was it, so what was the lesson other than trust? Had you not done your homework after watching not done all a, of these incredible professionals <laughs> no, doing it, all you know, their homework? It's,
1: it's such a boneheaded mistake. First of all, I know that you should do your homework. And really, do your homework. I didn't begin to do the homework I should have done. I didn't even check on the internet. I mean, you know, ridiculous. And I didn't ask people what your experience has been. And I could easily have done so. I just bought hook, line, and sinker, that this was a really smart guy with a very unusual personality, and that this would be a very interesting way for a modest fraction, but to add some Tabasco sauce to what I was doing, indexing and all that sort of stuff was just getting to be my way of doing things. This was about 10 years ago, and just absolutely dumb, boneheaded mistake. (laughs)
0: Oh, it is amazing how somehow the most knowledgeable people about investing with full careers and exposure to the greatest organizations, still somehow make some of humans. So you are a human being who makes human errors in investing. Oh, yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course, <laughs> I, I have to admit that I also had what's got to be the luckiest break anybody ever had in investing. Two. One was… I went to First Manhattan, which was, had been a client of Greenwich Associates, and the year before, I'd made a very strong statement that they should get all focus all their effort on investment management and not be in the institutional business, because the institutional brokerage business was shifting, increasing away from research as the primary need to trading being the primary need, and they were not a risk-taking organization, and it wouldn't fit. And as I got off the elevator, Sandy Gottesman, who's the chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, for many, many years, and the guy that stands and says, Thank you, Warren, which is what closes us to the annual meeting. Sandy was waiting for me at the elevator and said, We're going up to my club for lunch. As we got in the elevator, he said, uh, Just want you to know, we're not going to take your service because I figured out you were right last year. We shouldn't be in the stock brokerage business. So when we sit down for lunch, just tell me what you want to talk about, and we'll talk about that good lord what do i talk about i said sat down i said sandy you're one of the best investors any of us know what do you think are the most important insights that you have into investing presumptuous on my part absolutely open-ended question then he said um, berkshire and i said what do you mean sandy he said uh, berkshire hathaway I said, you know, I'd love to have you tell me about it, not knowing that he was an expert on Berkshire Hathaway and had known Warren for years. And so he did a complete examination and exposition. And I went back to my partners and I said, you know, we've got this small reserve fund set aside. The market's way, way down. Why don't we put it into a nice, safe investment? Berkshire Hathaway is a very high-grade not that the returns are necessarily going to be all that great, but a wonderful person manages, it, very, very smart and fabulous character. And I've just had a wonderful discussion leading, learning all about it. And do you remember when you made your first purchase of Berkshire Hathaway? Not exactly, but I I know what the price was. And it was closer to $500 than anything else. And, and know, that's of think, the original shares. Yeah, are, I mean. Who knows what today? Unbelievable. The other was I was standing on the beach with Jay Sherrod of Miller, Anderson, and Sharon. Jay was a wonderful man and a great friend. And We're standing on the beach looking out at the water, and he said, you know, you can get Neff at a discount. Uh, You know, that's interesting. John Neff has got to be one of the best investment managers in the business, but he also is everybody's dream of a guy who really pays attention to what nobody else pays attention to. Everybody else is looking for earnings, growth, and multiple expansion. John was all about risk, and avoiding risk, he figured if you didn't take risk, or if you managed the risk correctly, the rest would take care of itself. So, you know, market's way down. John is managing duo shares, capital shares and income shares where you, you put up a buck and I put up a buck and then you get all the dividends and I get the capital gains. And the capital shares were selling at an enormous discount. You know, you know John is the best risk manager. If I could even borrow some money on margin, so I loaded up on the capital shares at a discount, and then, first of all, the market went zooming up shortly thereafter, and zooming and zooming. Secondly, uh, the discount on the capital shares went to a premium. Third, the stocks that nobody wanted to own were the stocks that John bought all the time, and they went from a discount to a premium, and then margin. It was just marvelous experience. So, I can't complain.
0: Charlie, the last question is something I've asked uh, each of my guests, and it actually comes from you. It's something I remember you asking me at an inflection point in my career probably 15 years ago. Uh, and I, I throw a, a, an age on it, but that's okay. It, and it is, it, it is uh, your waning days. You are approximately 150 years old, sitting in your rocking chair, thinking back on your life. What advice would you give yourself yourself Today
1: That's a wonderful question. Of course, you boggle my mind with the idea of lasting that long. I think my answer would be do what you did before all over again because you enjoyed it so very, very much. I've had more friendships than anybody I know. I've been deeply involved in one of the great industry changes, industries of all time, during its most transformational change period. I've had the privilege of teaching at Harvard and at Yale and at Princeton. Now, a little exaggeration, because it's the CFA in-service program (laughs) at Princeton, but it was kind of fun. Known people all over the world who were deeply into the investment management and the best, best practitioners over and over and over again. Married to an extraordinarily wonderful woman i like my kids a lot Uh, they're not kids anymore they're in their 50s but uh, what wonderful people and to be in america and to be an american i think are two unbelievable privileges and i know lots of us and i'm included in that are very concerned about what's going on right now but the great strengths of america as a place to live place to work a place to do whatever you can in public service unbelievable privilege. And I'd be thrilled if I could do it all over again.
0: Charlie, thank you so much for the time. This has been just another enjoyable voyage into your mind.
1: Well, it's always great fun being with you, Ted. Thanks very, very much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time.